is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Less than 24 hours to go before a possible workers' strike shuts down L.A. public schools for three days. We'll go in-depth. Former President Trump may be indicted soon in New York City. We look into the case and the reaction. And the Supreme Court could hear a case on artificial intelligence. We start with the impending three-day LAUSD workers' strike. Jenna Schwartz is a co-founder of the advocacy group Parents Supporting Teachers. She has a son in the seventh grade at a middle school in the Valley. Jenna, thanks for being with us. Having me. So, uh, first of all, I guess some people wonder, and I've heard people talk about this, what the value of a three-day strike would be anyway. So they go on strike if they do for three days, then everybody presumably goes back to work, then what? Sure. I view it as kind of like a, hey, this is how bad it is without us right? Almost like a warning in terms of sometimes these are the workers that don't get as much um, credit. Sometimes they don't get talked about as much, recognized as much, but they are truly the workers that keep our schools running. Do you, uh, your group uh, supports the teachers and, and seems to be behind this, uh, this walkout here and, and the workers getting a better deal. Do you hear from parents who don't take that view, who tell you, I don't care, my kids can't afford to be out of school again because they, they look at this and they go, yeah, this is a three-day strike, but, you know, what's going to happen after that? And there's going to be more strikes and more walkouts, and they're worried about that. Do you hear from those parents? Sure. So I, I first just want to clarify that nobody wants a strike. So it's not that um, myself or any of the people in our group want a strike. What we want is a fair contract for the workers. We want them to be able to have a living wage. We want them to be um, brought out of poverty. Do we hear from parents who have that viewpoint? I mean, of course, there are people that have that viewpoint, but that is selfish to me. We can have three days of a challenge, right? Three challenging days, maybe. But if it ends with these workers earning enough that they can live, maybe bring them out of homelessness, bring them out of food insecurity, it's worth it. You have a seventh grader, right? Uh, what are you going to do if there's a strike for three days? We are going to uh, strap on our umbrellas and uh, head out and march with these workers and with the teachers that are supporting them. And it's going to be a lesson in civics for three days. But let me ask you something, because uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound or it sounds as if you're in a position where if there's a strike for three days, you don't have, or do you, the dilemma of, uh, do I go to work for three days or do I miss work for three days and stay home with the kid? Absolutely. No, I am incredibly fortunate that I am able to go and march with the teachers. And I am incredibly grateful for Mayor Bass and the city of Los Angeles and our school district for opening up rec centers, opening up school sites, so that for families who aren't able to take work off, they do have a place for their kids to go. I also know of a bunch of parents who have volunteered to take um, their friends' kids so that their friends don't have to miss work. And this is part of the way our community comes together. Are you uh, ready for any plans down the road if we do this walkout and and perhaps another one? We don't know. 
uh, for kids to have to make up those days, maybe do some extra days, maybe lose some holiday days down the road? Uh, We'll see. I don't think that's on the table right now because the schools are still open for the other workers, which means their contract would have to be changed. Um, But I I am really only looking towards tomorrow. I, I am still incredibly hopeful that it won't even happen, that we're going to, that SCIU and LAUSD are going to reach a consensus today. And we are going to get a lovely notification that says, School is on tomorrow, and no one is marching in the rain (laughs) or missing school. I'm curious, Jenna, during the lockdown phase of the pandemic, how did uh, you handle that with your child? Um, We're definitely, definitely tough times. Um, My son, as many children, um, and I have an older child as well, did not enjoy being home. They struggled mightily as um you know tweens and teens do uh, I, I the first thing my son said is uh wait do we have to have zoom again um so that is definitely not something that anybody wants the teachers uh, some of the teachers i know worked way harder doing zoom school than than they have to uh in their traditional school year because they had to create everything from scratch Right, but I, but I and, but the reason I Jenna yeah. the reason why I asked you that yeah. question was because as I understand it if there's a three day strike uh, there won't be mm-hmm. Zoom school for the three days no. because the school system isn't set up for it so uh, are you now concerned that even though it's three days your kid will actually lose three days of instruction after having gone through that lockdown phase for two plus years? Sure, I mean I don't think anybody wants their child to miss any instruction, right? We, our kids missed a lot and to, to have to sort of reckon that with, again, like is what's worse, my child or any child missing three days of instruction or the possibility of an entire workforce or earning a livable wage. I just, I can't justify my own concerns about three days for my own kid versus an entire workforce. All right, Jenna Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us with the uh, group Parent Supporting Teachers. Right now, though, a grand jury in Manhattan is hearing testimony and could decide pretty soon whether to indict former President Trump in connection with hush money given to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Jan Ronis is a criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. Jan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. So a lot of people uh, that I hear discussing this case are a little bit baffled. Actually, some of them are a lot baffled about what the crime here, if there is a crime that will be alleged, is. Uh, It's not surely paying so-called hush money because I'm not even sure New York State has such a law in the books. So what would the case be? Well, first of all, it's not it doesn't have much sex appeal. OK, it's it certainly it, it isn't close to uh, Trump essentially exhorting his supporters to undermine the constitutionally elected current president of the United States, you know, in the January 6th uh, run up. But nevertheless, it's a crime. I'm somewhat disappointed that if uh, President Trump or former President Trump is is uh, there's probable cause to believe he's committed the many things that have been out there over the years that they picked this one. It, like I say, it doesn't have much appeal and it just doesn't seem to rise to the level of the other allegations that for which he's been investigated. But nevertheless, it is a crime. Um, I don't know why the, 
the New York prosecutors have decided to go after him for this. But you well, know, is it to, is like, it the is it the Al Capone thing that they eventually got Al Capone <laughs> on tax charges? Well, I look. I understand that nobody's against the, above the law, and that if you commit a crime, that you should be prosecuted if there's evidence to support it. Uh, but but on the other hand, you, you know, I think they probably should balance the likely re, your response you're going to get from his xenophobic uh, supporters in this country for what really seems like, you know, not a that, not that big of a deal. I'm not suggesting that anybody should engage in that kind of conduct. But compared to the other things he's been charged with, I, I just think that the response from the his supporters is going to overwhelm whatever benefit there might be in the interest of justice going forward. But it, it is a crime. Um, and essentially, it's he falsified um, election um, reports in terms of what you have to declare as, as contributions and things of that nature. So there's a technical aspect to it, which may make you know a successful prosecution difficult. And so that's why it's kind of hard for people to get their arms around it to find out really what's the real crime here. Now, uh, Donald Trump made a splash uh, by claiming that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday, right. uh, but nobody else would uh, confirm that, uh, that no arrest was planned. But, you know, an indictment might come down. Could an indictment come tomorrow? I understand they're till, still taking testimony today. Uh, well, one yeah. of the people that he wanted to go testify to kind of impugn the testimony of Michael Cohen. Well, I think he was in, in New York. Uh, you have a right to testify for the grand jury. You don't even need an invitation. You can reach out and, and say that you want to you know, uh, testify to your side of the story. So I don't really think he's done that. He would, from a lawyer's point of view, he, he would be a fool to, to do that. Uh, but he certainly had the ability to do so. If, in fact, they're still taking testimony, then an indictment hasn't issued. I kind of thought over the weekend that perhaps he had already been indicted, but it looks like there's on, an ongoing grand jury proceeding. And so... And I get the impression an indictment is imminent, um, but we won't know, you know, until such time as, you know, it's issued. And then what did they send? Do they send the marshals out to pick them up and arrest them? How do you effectuate an arrest warrant? Well, that's a problem because he's in Florida. Well, I mean, it's it's it may not even be an extraditable offense. That's the other thing. He's a he's living in Florida. Um you know, there is a compact among states to extradite people that are sought in other states, but it has to be a crime punishable in that in the state, in the demanding state. So it may not be what he's charged with in New York may not be a crime in Florida. So that's another complication. So to go back no easy, to go, Jan, no easy to, road to getting him in custody, to go back to the indictment issue, you know, that old uh, saying among prosecutors that a good prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Is that true? Well, I mean, generally, there are a lot of safeguards getting up to a grand jury proceeding. And there's, a, you know, there's an investigation usually conducted by law enforcement, and, and they present the facts to the prosecuting agency, and they're the ones that decide to present it to the grand jury. And the grand jurors, once it gets to that point, it's rare, um, certainly in California, grand jury proceedings are somewhat rare in California, but it's rare that once a grand jury proceeding is initiated, that somebody's not charged. Now, New York uh, has, as I mentioned before, they actually allow people to come testify um, before a grand, you know, the suspects to testify in a grand jury proceeding. So they have a much lower um, indictment rate than other states. And so, you know, whether the ham sandwich, you know, uh, metaphor applies in New York, it remains to be seen. But, but, I, but just I once, suspect, I like to see somebody actually indict a ham sandwich, just so we can put this to rest once and for all. I don't know. I've often wondered over the years. I've heard that expression. It sounds pretty 
corn, corn I've had some ham had sandwiches that, that should have been indicted. <laughs> well, that's a good point. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jan uh, Ronas, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. And, of course, the question then becomes what kind of ham sandwich exactly. and, yeah. you know. And still ahead, Vladimir Putin rolling out the red carpet. You know, they have a red carpet, but in Hollywood yeah. it was champagne. Yeah, uh, beige. Well, yeah, it was beige, I know, but yeah, champagne. But but at least there they they stuck with red. But he's rolling out the red carpet for China's leader. Leader, we'll get into why. And the uh, Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, could uh, decide an interesting case on the rights. Yeah, you heard that right. On the rights of artificial intelligence. Right now, though, intelligence sources telling CBS News that they're seeing uh, what they call a significant increase in threats and violent rhetoric online from domestic violent extremists. Now, this comes after former President Trump called for protests if he's arrested. Uh, Mia Bloom is a professor at Georgia State University, also co-author of a book called Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, as I was perusing the news stories covering the, the rise of this uh, rhetoric, I did see one where I, I can't remember who it was. It was some French way out there, French person saying that the instant that uh, Donald Trump is arrested, that the military should go arrest and execute immediately uh, Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden, a list of other people that, uh, that they don't like. Susan Rice, I think, was included on that list for some reason that I don't really understand. Uh, is that the kind of things that we're talking about here, violent rhetoric? insurrectionist uh, revolution rebellion well you hear a lot of this violent rhetoric uh, one of the projects that i do as part of my research is um looking at the narratives and the rhetoric that we see on these semi-encrypted platforms like telegram and you have a lot of people who are posting and sharing and you know they're exaggerating both the threat and the response i'll give you an example yesterday one of trump supporters from florida posted this video uh, in New York City of all these Trump supporters and flags and cars. And that was not from 2023. So I think that they are trying to create facts where there are none. The other thing that's really important to remember, and a lot of people forget that there is a massive uh, difference between how many people are sharing content and posting content and how many people actually do something. And so, you know, you need to have the organization like you did around January 6th to get the people out there. Instead, you're just going to have a lot of wannabes and as I would call them, fantasists. I'm wondering if the opposite in in, in terms of what's happening or might happen with uh, Donald Trump and any indictment, is the opposite also the case? Is there chatter uh, on the web from supporters who are saying, you know, this time we have to hold back. Look what happened on January 6th. So many people, hundreds of people were arrested. Some got convicted already. This is not a good thing to do. No, in fact, the way the narrative has worked, and it's really perverse, I don't know how people can believe it, but they argue online that January 6th was Antifa and Black Lives Matter, despite the fact that we watch this in real time. And for example, the manipulation of the video um, by Tucker Carlson that showed Jacob Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman, you know, quietly walking through the Capitol with Capitol Police, that there was nothing. It's as if we have this um, memory erased of we were watching it in real time. We know what happened on January 6th. It wasn't this quiet, nobody was in the Capitol. And also we know that, you know, what happened as a result of that. So you don't get people sort of cautioning 
supporters to say, hey, listen, you know, maybe we've learned our lesson. If anything, what you see is people doubling and tripling down. But but the base rate, and we've done this study uh, and others have done the study between, uh, let's say, jihadis who used to post during ISIS and how many people actually did something. It was a half of 1%. My co-author, Sofia Moskalenko, and I have looked at the, quote-unquote, radicalization of the QAnon conspiracy supporters, and you're looking at even less of a base rate of people who are posting versus people who will ever do anything. Is there a chance here, and I'm thinking of the guy that used to run the, the Nexium cult. Uh, once he got arrested, well, he still has his hardcore supporters, but a lot of people peeled away after that. Uh, there is a cult of personality aspect to uh, that guy and also to uh, Donald Trump to some degree that if he does get arrested, uh, that will puncture the, the kind of aura of invincibility that he has among his most ardent supporters. And that that uh, that might counterintuitively lead to some people peeling off of Donald Trump saying, well, I, he's not invulnerable and uh, he's now really in trouble and maybe we should find somebody else to follow. Is, is that possible or or is the support just so hardcore? I think the difference with Keith Renier is that a lot of the people closest to Renier disavowed him. And so you have a number of the people who were sort of very influential in Nexium uh, were among the first people to defect. And they've made a series of of there's documentaries, there's videos, there's HBO movies. There's a lot of information out there. I think the difference is. Um, the way in which, first of all, there's many more millions of Trump supporters than there were ever Nexium cult members. And I think what they've done is they've created this possibility of martyrdom. These images of Trump being imbued with, you know, by Christ as a new martyr, uh, we're not seeing uh, when all of, let's say, the predictions of him having a second term or all the things, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be arrested, all these things that they say that never come to fruition don't seem to shake their belief systems. So we, we don't have this sort of wake-up call. What you might see is you have that sort of comment you had by Ron DeSantis where he's attacking the, the New York City um, prosecutors while at the same time reminding the crowd about Stormy Daniels mm. and pay off money to a porn star. So I think what it might do is it might shake some of the, the senators and the congressmen right. from wanting to hitch their wagon to, to Trump. But as far as his supporters are concerned, he is like a, a Christ-like figure. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Mia Bloom uh, with Georgia State University. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. China's leader Xi Jinping now in Russia visiting with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's a sign the uh, two countries are looking to strengthen ties, but at what cost to the U.S.? Andrew Murtha is director of the SICE China Global Research Center at Johns Hopkins University. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Yeah, good afternoon. So uh, I know that the U.S. has been sending out signals uh, recently that the concern was that China was going to offer military assistance uh, to Moscow uh, in its war uh, against Ukraine. That apparently is not, or at least not as yet, occurred. Nonetheless, uh, what is the symbolic significance, in your view, of Xi's visit to uh, Putin? I think the symbolic significance is that um, uh, Russia is otherwise isolated and really doesn't have another uh, place to go. Um, from the standpoint of uh, Beijing, I think it is to help shore up some sort of a, um, uh, a an alliance or something to kind of 
just to signal to the West uh, that China would not welcome uh, interference in uh, its uh, attempts to resolve uh, its uh, problems uh, with Taiwan, even though I think the the analogy is a, a bit imperfect. I'm uh, thinking about, uh, you know, China brokered some kind of deal uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And it looks like uh, Xi Jinping is maybe in in talking to Putin, saying that he's talking to Putin about maybe finding some kind of agreement or settlement on Ukraine and that he's going to reach out to uh, the president of Ukraine after this. Is is that the 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 play that China is making right now to become this world leader who's brokering peace deals, and we're going to solve the world's problems unlike the United States. Uh, I think that's definitely what she's trying to do. I mean, I, his uh, success in brokering that um, detente with uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, I mean, that was a genuine achievement uh, that I think uh, we would have been unable to do and China was. Uh, but I think if he's trying to broker something similar uh, between Russia and Ukraine, he's going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, China is definitely not seen as a disinterested or neutral party uh, in this particular uh, conflict, given his, um, you know, his association uh, and rhetoric with Putin. So if that's his goal, I would imagine he'll be sorely disappointed. So China emerges from this meeting as as what the uh, they got the most out of it. Not so much from the meeting, but I think from the relationship, uh, I, uh, China is certainly uh, uh, far more powerful vis-a-vis uh, Russia than has historically been the case. Uh, and that's that definitely checks uh, a box. Uh, but I think really China is working from uh, kind of a position of uh, fear uh, in that uh, there's a lot of um, uh, countries sandwiched between China and Russia um, and uh, China wants to make sure that things remain stable in its backyard. Um, and uh, Russia might, uh, you know, ha- has the possibility of upsetting that. Um, but I also think that um, uh, China kind of made its bed and now it has to sleep in it. Um, and so I, I think there's going to be a lot of talk behind the scenes and, 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 uh, and attempts from Beijing after uh, Xi's trip to try to uh, work both both uh, ends of the aisle. Uh, but uh, I don't think we're going to be buying what he's going to want to be selling. All right. Thank you so much. Andrew Murtha with Johns Hopkins University. If corporations are considered people under the law, what about artificial intelligence? And the Supreme Court might be tackling that very question. A computer scientist is asking the high court to hear his case about whether his AI system can legally hold a patent for an invention that it supposedly generated. John Villasenor is UCLA law professor, focuses on technology, law and policy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me on. So uh, just right off the bat, uh, can an AI uh, hold a patent? Well, currently, uh, the the circuit court, the federal circuit, which is a federal court in Washington, D.C., as of August 2022, has said, no, an AI system cannot be a named inventor on a U.S. patent. Uh, but, of course, uh, the story may not be over there. So let's follow this to to at least down one potential road. And let's say the Supreme Court uh accepts the case and decides in the affirmative uh what can of worms might that open 
a pretty complicated one. So first of all, I think it's it's important for uh, you know listeners to know that the Supreme Court declines to hear the majority of the petitions that it's presented with. So just on a purely statistical basis, there's really a pretty small chance that the Supreme Court grants this particular petition. But but if it were to grant the position the petition, then we have the question of what would it decide. Uh, and it may decide to simply affirm the lower court decision that an AI system can't be named as an inventor. But if the Supreme Court were to reverse the federal circuit and say that an AI system can be named an inventor under U.S. patent law, that would open a pretty big can of worms. Um, it's pretty complicated because then the question is, well, uh, an inventor has has certain rights. Uh, and um, so how, for example, would uh, an AI system exercise the, the rights and, and associated with inventorship? Uh, it's a really, really complicated question. How close are we to the science fiction plot where an AI or a robot is uh, capable of at least mimicking human thoughts so well that we cannot tell the difference? And someone is able to go to court and make the case that uh, maybe it doesn't have the rights of a person, but it should at least have the rights of a corporation. How close are we to that point? Well, no, it's a really interesting question in the sense that you know AI systems don't think the way humans do. But the other part of your question, you, I think you said, so it appears to be thinking. In other words, um, the AI systems, as many of your listeners have probably seen with some of the recent news, can act in ways that aren't easily distinguishable in some cases in terms of the verbal expressions and things like that from, from humans. And so um, it is certainly not science fiction. It is, you know, we are really at the point where some of the more AI advanced systems are going to be able to uh, do things that in the past only humans could do involving creative tasks, including contributing to the conception of an invention. So these questions are front and center. Um, I, I think we can accommodate them without naming AI systems as an inventor. I, I've suggested in my own work that we can name the humans behind the AI systems as the inventors when AI helps to come up with invention. But of course, not everyone agrees with that. And maybe the AI system won't agree with that. <laughs> uh, well, we, we can ask it these days and, and see what it says. Perhaps it wouldn't agree. You know, you mentioned uh, about how AI systems don't think the way uh, people think. Uh, which made me think, uh, you know, I mean, there was a time, right, when when animals were not uh, given rights or, or, or courts didn't recognize rights of animals because they, well, they didn't think the way people think. But now they do. Uh, and animals do have certain rights, even though they think differently than humans do. So why would that not necessarily ex uh, extend to an artificial intelligence system? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. Of course, I think animals are different, uh, fundamentally different in the sense that animals are, are sentient beings. And, and, you know, for good reason, there are laws, you know, for example, regarding, you know, the conditions, you know, to help promote people keeping animals in the proper conditions. But at the same time, we have a, a limit uh, in terms of the level of kind of autonomy and responsibility we assign. So, for example, um, if someone's dog, um, you know, bites somebody else, you know, you, you can't sue the dog, right? You could sue the, the owner of the dog. Um, and because we understand that, that the animal, although the dog is a, is a thinking creature, it's sentient, um, it, is, it doesn't have responsibility in that way. Um, but I do think that it, machines are different because, again, um, you know, a dog, uh, a dog deserves to be treated well and will be justifiably unhappy if it's not. And I don't know that we can say that about a, about a computer program. You know, I think it w would be interesting about whether or not uh, they are like humans 
I think we won't get to that point until that day when someone says to their AI, hey, write this article for me. And the AI says, no, I don't feel like doing that. I don't know that we're that far away from it right now. (laughs) Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, it's some of the transcripts that you that I you know that are going around on social media with some of these more advanced, you know, generative AI tools are they're really just absolutely stunning. And I think you know, broadly speaking, the the pace, the rapidity with which this technology has advanced. I mean, just in the last six months or a year, if you propagate that forward, where are we going to be in a year or two or three? It's it's really boggles the imagination. Well, you know, the AI system that a lot of us have been even trying out in our spare times uh, has been able to pass the bar exam. How does that make you yep. feel as an attorney? <laughs> well, I'm not an attorney, but um, but yeah, I think, it, you know, t- to be fair, you know, when it's passing the bar exam, especially the GPT-4, the latest iteration, it's got access to this incredibly enormous corpus of information. Whereas when a, when a person goes in to take the bar exam, it's just them and their, you know, they don't have, they can't Google things on the internet when they're in the bar exam. Um, and so it's not really an apples to apples comparison, but it is illustrative of the kind of capability that these uh, these systems are, are rapidly gaining. All right. Uh, thanks so much, uh, John Villasenor. At least we think that was uh, him and none of the AI, a UCLA law professor focusing on uh, technology law and, and policy. Are you worried about your, your phone uh, when you uh, say, hey, uh, uh, call work, and the phone says no? Well, th- there are times when I know that Siri is, I think, on like a coffee break mm-hmm. because I ask uh, if she can do something and she kind of gives me attitude. So I, I think she's on a break. I have to say, and and uh, my on-air partner, Karen Adams, is on the air with me when this happened. Yeah. And I was saying something, and my watch heard me and thought I was asking a question. Uh-huh. And it kept responding, and it happened all throughout the day until finally I said, shut up. And the Ooh. watch said, yeah. I'm not kidding you, the watch said, that's not nice. You see, you insulted it. I insulted the watch. Yeah, you've got to be careful around these, AI, these yeah. things. Yeah. They're that's, very sensitive. That's going to do it for uh, In-Depth Today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.